You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast with me, Olivia Nelson. In April this year, the Australian government released the Defence Strategic Review, which sets an agenda of ambitious reform to defence's posture and structure. Aspie's Jen Parker speaks to the US Study Centre's Professor Peter Dean, who co-authored this review. They discuss defence strategy in the maritime domain and the next steps for the government following on from the review, including the surface fleet review, decisions on uncrewed capabilities and addressing workforce challenges. Good morning, Peter. It's wonderful to have Peter Dean here. Peter is the Director of Foreign Policy and Defence at the United States Study Centre at the University of Sydney. Uh, and Peter is also a co-author of the recently released Australia's Defence Strategic Review. So uh, it's wonderful to have somebody that is uh, inside the tent. So welcome, Peter. Thank you. It's really good to be here. And Peter, uh, you did a fantastic podcast. I'm not quite sure if we're meant to do cross-promotion, but with uh, Rory <laughs> Medcalf uh, and the National Security College talking about the DSR. And you talked about the um, Surface Fleet Review, which yep. there's been a lot of writing on. A, a lot of people were surprised that there wasn't more definitive guidance on the structure of the Surface Fleet. So today, if you don't mind, I'd really kind of like to, to drill into some of the background to that. And we might start with just, you know, do you mind giving us your, your, your two cents on what the DSR says about the maritime domain and the surface fleet and some of the background thinking on that? Sure. Well, uh, it's, it's good that it's generating debate. You, you've written some excellent pieces. I'll particularly commend your work the other day that I was pushing out on Twitter about Tier 1 and Tier 2 surface combatants and corvettes and frigates and the different names. Um, you know, Navy gets things, things complicated sometimes. You know, a frigate can be this many tonnes or that many tonnes and a corvette can be bigger than a frigate sometimes. So it's, it's good to sort of have that sort of public debate and public narrative. So look, I think a couple of things I'll say about the maritime domain. There's a big maritime focus in the DSR. Fundamentally, if you look at a map, and there's a great map that I really like that's in the DSR, which tilts Australia on its side. Um, it's a map of the Indo-Pacific. It shows our maritime approaches. It shows the vast nature of the maritime spaces. And of course, I think it reinforces that we're an island. And we are a continent, but hopefully in many respects, the DSR sort of ends that debate in Australian strategy between island and continent, between history and geography. Um, geography is one in my view. We are an island and the maritime domain is critically important for who we are and uh, who we are as a, as a community and a society, but how our economy runs and operates. So the DSR also was done in a really quick period of time. So we started in August, handed it over on the 14th of February. And it talks particularly in parts of this, say, in relation to CASG, about don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. So the, the leads worked very hard on the surface fleet and the Navy maritime component piece that would match with the strategy. But it got to the point where it was coming to the pointy end of the review and there was still work to be done. And the question is, do you hold over the whole review and push that out longer or do you hand over the review and put in that, given that it's only been six months, some key areas where additional work needs to be done. And so there's recommendations in here, for instance, to do a review of the ADF reserves. I think that's a really important component piece that will fall out of the strategy and the big changes that will need to probably occur there. But also, so for the surface fleet, with the introduction of AUKUS, with the acquiring of Pillar 1 nuclear-powered submarines, and the fact that 
most of the capabilities that were defined for Navy, a lot of them came out of, say, the 2009 white paper, the, the offshore patrol vessels and the hunter-class frigate program, a, a frigate program, and then the big recapitalization of Navy in the 2016 defence white paper. They felt that there needs to be a bit more independent analysis to be brought in to complete that. But as you can see in section sort of eight of the document, it does talk about a maritime nation being dependent on our sea lines of communication. It talks critically in the critical capabilities list in section eight about the importance of undersea warfare and enhanced all domain maritime capabilities for sea denial. And I think that's important. It's an all domain component. It's not a Navy component. So it's also about how Air Force and Army in particular contribute to the maritime domain. And so the document also talks about the need for a longer range strike in maritime and land the Navy surface fleet for greater air defence and greater anti-submarine warfare capabilities. And then a mix of tier one and tier two surface combatants consistent with a strategy of a larger number of smaller vessels. So the leads are giving very clear guidance on this, but naval fleet construction is very complex. That will affect shipbuilding in Australia and the fleet mix. So they felt that there needed to be more work to complete that so it's not like it's a whole new review, this independent analysis. It's an independent analysis on the basis of the direction that the leads are giving to government and was accepted by government. Look, thanks, Peter. That's fantastic. And I think, you know, one of the one of the commendable things <coughs> about the DSR is it really does talk about the maritime domain as a, a joint uh, or an integrated, uh, should be the term now, yeah. uh, endeavour. You know, and it's pleasing to talk about Army's role in that and the acquisition of HIMARS and the protection of sea lines of communication. And it's certainly a direction that the US Marine Corps has also been talking about, especially with their role of the stand-in force and that kind of concept. Um, so thank you so much for talking us through that. Uh, you touched upon there, um, and something that really struck me with the DSR is it really did fill with the surface fleet structure, and, and not just to focus in on that because there is more to the maritime domain uh, than just that, that the uh, leads did have a view that there needed to be some changes, uh, and it talked about the need for more uh, vessels. Um, can you talk us through some of the thinking that led to that decision that, you know, we need to have um, – greater scale, smaller capabilities? So I think, um, as the document says, navies, Australia's Navy must be optimised for operating in Australia's immediate region and for the security of our sea lines of communication and maritime trade. So if you look at our immediate region, both, you know, the, the previous DSU starts to define from a defence point of view a narrower approach to the Indo-Pacific and then DSR narrows that in a little bit more. Um, if you look at the South Pacific and Southeast Asia in particular, which have always been core to Australian strategy, these are very large maritime domains, but also very large littoral and archipelagic regions. So Indonesia is the largest archipelagic state in the world. It conjoins to Malaysia, which is also an archipelagic state. And going down into the Pacific, Fiji, Papua New Guinea, the Solomon Islands are all archipelagic states. So what you've got here is a, a sea, air, land operating environment. And within that environment, the discussion was around what's the best way to optimise the maritime domain in an integrated approach across all five domains to how to get effects in the maritime domain. That was sort of the bigger picture thinking. The document also then talks about, you know, the rise of the missile age 
and the changing character of war in relation to that, the extending range of those missiles and long-range fires. And as the critical capabilities list talks about, you know, there needs to be an integrated um, targeting capability for the ADF to be able to operate over those longer ranges as well. So these are all the big drivers that brought us down to, and you're absolutely right, that the surface fleet is a broad surface fleet. So we need to look at um, the mixture, not just of tier one and tier two surface combatants, but what's the amphibious force mix, particularly working in a littoral and archipelagic environment? What is the role of the AORs in supporting that fleet and how many do you need? And of course, they are all consequential things that relate to that. Um, it's a big bit of work. And as the document says, the leads then settled on Rather than you know the review going longer, or rather than making uh, recommendations to, to government at that point, there needed to be an additional piece of work to really unpack um, all of that. And and you're right. If you look at on the army side of things, it, it brings forward the littoral watercraft um, for because of the very same reasons that we discussed. That needs to be integrated into the shipbuilding plan as well, um, and that needs to be managed. And of course, if you're going to make recommendations around this um, about platforms or capabilities or that type of stuff, you need to think through what are the options um, in that. And it's not like you can just go and necessarily pick these things up off the shelf very quickly. So there's a lot. There's a really complex nature. Anyone involved in in surface ship design, fleet design. Um, maintenance and sustainment of that, as well as the shipbuilding enterprise. And the government has rightly committed, I think, to continuous shipbuilding in Australia as well, to maintain that sovereign capability. So it's a big bit of work. Um, and the leads obviously have made this recommendation because they believed additional work needed to happen to ensure that the government got the best possible advice to get this right. Is that experience? So you talked there about the, the surface combatant fleet review, but you talked also about uh, the amphibious capability, the replenishment capability, and the armamentorial. So uh, I know that you are you are not conducting the surface combatant fleet review. But, no, I am not. <laughs> but uh, do you think that will you know surface combatant uh, a very a very narrow term and. You mentioned my paper before that talks about, you know, terms are important when we're discussing yep. this. We need to really define them. So are you expecting to see from that review um, more of a wider discussion on fleet structure, not just about uh, service combatants, fighting ships, but all of those enabling capabilities? Oh, look, uh, I hope so. And if you look at the document in particular when it talks about the land uh, domain and the air domain, it talks about particular priorities that have to be given. So the first priority in the land domain on section 8.29, if we get technical of the document, says a littoral manoeuvre capability by sea, air and land. Um, so I would hope to see, and I haven't seen the terms of, of, of reference for that particular route for the government. I'm not involved, as you said, in any of that. But the document here gets down to providing what those priorities are. You would hope that that's replicated in this fleet review. And that, that as you said, goes beyond, you know, a discussion of air warfare destroyers and frigates or OPVs into the broader balance of the fleet. And that's what's really critically important. Um, we can't get overly focused on one particular platform um, or even one particular subcomponent piece, uh, a capability within the surface fleet mix. And as you've seen by what's been directed for Army to do to introduce long-range fires, to increase air and missile defence, to bring forward the littoral manoeuvre capability, as well as maintaining the close combat capability. That's about balancing that force against the strategy and what you need, obviously, the surface fleet component to do along with the nuclear-powered submarine component as a total package 
to meet the strategy. And that's what's really important here. The changes are being driven by the strategy that the document outlines, which is being driven by the strategic environment. There was a real deliberative process in the DSR to get an assessment of the strategic environment right, to get the strategy in place and only then talk about the capabilities. And of course, it talks about to moving to a much more focused force around that strategy, given the threats that we face. But it also talks about, as you said, the move to the integrated force, because maritime, to me, maritime is an operating environment. It's a geography and land forces, naval forces, air forces, space and cyber all have a role to play in that maritime environment. And that is the dominant geography for us. That's the dominant geography which our ADF has to operate in because we're an island and we're surrounded by these archipelagos and we live in the Indo-Pacific, which is an extraordinarily large maritime environment. And we sit on the hinge of the Indian and Pacific Oceans um, and the Southern Ocean, if you also want to talk about that dimension of our geography as well. So I think it's that getting that balance right related to the strategy um, and it has to look at a broad base. I, I'm hoping it's looking at a broad base of that fleet design to meet those needs. And I, and I think uh, most commentators on this subject are, are very much hoping that, um, you know, there was, it was a point in the DSR, and I'm sorry, it's not sitting directly in front of me, so if I misquote it, uh, pull me up, as you will. He talks about one of the justifications for the, the fleet structure review was the uh, AUKUS decision. And I guess there was a concern there that uh, there was a view that getting better submarines meant that the surface fleet didn't need to have that same uh, anti-submarine warfare capability. But I guess from what, from what you're saying there, that it's not that linkage. It's the, hey, we're thinking about the maritime domain as an integrated area of operations and we need to think about all the different facets that influence the structure of the fleet. So one of the things that I found interesting with uh, the DSR was, so the force structure plan, one of the significant things in the maritime domain, I think anyway, from the force structure plan is the start of that conversation about offensive mining, which is often left out of the strike conversation. Uh, but to my view, it is a strike capability. It is. And it is a long range strike capability, depending on how you deploy it. I was interested that the DSR, and I, you know, I get it was it was written very quickly. The version we're talking about is only the public version, which uh, I think Paul Dib has been quoted as saying is likely forty percent less than the, the 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 classified version. It focuses very much in on the surface combatant fleet and the uh, effects it needs to deliver. It talks about undersea warfare. It talks about strike, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But there's not much of a mention of the mining capability in that discussion around long-range strike or the mine countermeasure capability. Was that a a deliberate decision because you thought the FSP had probably gotten that right? Well, look, I wouldn't take what's in the public document as as any specific direction or reflection of moving away from what you've just said. I, I think you've hit the nail on the head about there's been a long now, well, not a long, but there's been an important ongoing discussion since that force structure plan about the role of offensive mining. As I said, this is a broad-based fleet review which would look at, you know, the ability for vessels to do offensive mining but also do mine countermeasures. And we've also, if you notice, the government has already released and publicly announced that they're buying mines. So the same way that during the DSR, and that was during the DSR process from memory, I'd have to check my timing, don't hold me to that, but also during the DSR process, um, you know, there were announcements made about Apache attack helicopters, there are announcements made about Black Hawk helicopters, about the acquisition of naval and joint strike missiles. You know, again, with the emphasis on speed, the end of warning time, 
Obviously, some things have to have waited to the outcome of the review, but the leads worked with government to ensure that some projects that were aligning with the strategy, that were aligning with the direction, continued to happen at pace that's needed. Because the document talks about the importance of moving at greater speed. The leads were very enamored. We had a short time to do this review, but that was very deliberate because we couldn't sit around and pontificate for a couple of years and then tell the department and the government to go faster. You've got to lead by example. Um, and I, I think you're right. that Offensive mining and, and mine countermeasures are really critical because they are long-range strike capabilities. You know, they can be deployed covertly from submarines. They can um, potentially be deployed by uh, underwater autonomous systems. And if you look particularly at the critical capabilities list, it talks about undersea warfare capabilities that are both crewed and uncrewed. So this is also an important um, fleet mix discussion. If you look at some of the subtle things around autonomous systems that that are in here, there's there's references to that in here. I think that's going to be an important part of the discussion within defence around the way that all of the domains work in terms of autonomous and remote systems, including the ability to mine countermeasures with autonomous systems, or if need be, if required, the Department of Defence sees this as key as part of the strategy to deliver that effect for a long-range strike capability. We know we're acquiring them. We do. And um, really interesting that you touch on the uncrewed capability. I've, I've heard it referenced in a few conversations of whether uncrewed surface vessels are the tier 2.5 uh, <laughs> ship, which I, which I well, thought Well, that's going to get us into another really fascinating conversation. Uh, Keep I, us employed for years. Absolutely. Absolutely. Which I thought was, which I thought was interesting. I guess some of the expectation around the DSR and um, was that it might be a little bit more specific on capabilities in the maritime domain and it might actually highlight some uncrewed capabilities that we intend to acquire. And I guess what I'm what I'm taking from what you're saying is you looked at the whole range of fleet mix and decided that there were a number of things that just needed to have the time to be worked out. And that's why we're moving into into a, a second review. And I suspect that the uncrewed element and how that supports uh, the maritime domain was was part of that. Yep. Do you have any kind of thoughts on or or would you be happy to talk to what were some of the, I guess, barriers to making a decision with the DSR on, on some of those capabilities? Is it a case of really there's just needs to be more time to talk with industry? You know, you mentioned before that, you know, really it's you need to have a comprehensive naval shipbuilding plan, which is obviously a, a current focus of the government. There's obviously obviously the challenge as well for the ADF and specifically the Navy workforce. And I note that the DSR really highlights in the focal areas that Navy is probably suffering the most in terms of workforce. So I yeah. guess that probably influenced your thinking on that as well. Yeah, and look, I, I think there's a key line in section 8.26 where it talks about immediate investment priorities for Navy. That's the section specifically about what it says is an independent analysis of the Navy's surface fleet capability, about its size, its structure, its composition. But then it says the analysis must include or should include an assessment of cost, schedule, risk, and the continuous um, shipbuilding potential of each option. That is not a thing that's easily and quickly done. And, of course, the, the DSR team weren't resourced to do that. Like that was not our remit and our role. So the leads have, have developed very clear guidance. So it's kind of not – I wouldn't say it's a review of a review. It's an extension of the DSR review work for an additional piece of independent analysis. And that takes time when you're doing assessments of cost, schedule, risk – 
and the continuous shipbuilding potential of each option. You've got to identify the options and then you've got to do a significant amount of work behind them to look at costs, risk and schedule and assessment of those. That's not quickly and easily done. And you need, as I said, to take a little bit of time, I think, to get that right. And uh, that's, a, that's a really important – I'm really comfortable, you know, with the way this is playing out because why risk to make that assessment? And as you said, this needs to involve assessments of industry capability. This needs to involve the assessment of, of what potential options are out there, how much time that would take, and where does this sit within um, the cost schedule – and uh, the investment profile for Navy and that commitment to continuous shipbuilding um, and the shipbuilding plan. So there's a lot of pieces in the Tetris. If you're playing Tetris with this, there's a lot of little pieces you've got to slot in. So I think, you know, it's, it's due at the end of quarter three this year. That's not a long way away. Um, that's not a long way after the DSR was delivered. So I see this not really as a review, a review calling for a review, I would say this is an extrapolation of the work of the DSR. And rather than holding up the whole DSR, you get the DSR out because there's many good pieces of work and the defence and the government needed to do to get on with it, while this piece of work continues um, and then um, that advice can be given to government with greater surety. On the on the on the workforce consideration uh, mentioned in the DSR, you know, um, it, it does have a pleasingly a, a section on workforce, and it talks about the importance of the ADF reserves and gives ideas like the ready reserves and, and concepts like that. But I thought it was interesting to me of of the the three services. It really does call out the the workforce challenges for Navy. In your discussions and your thinking around the DSR. Uh, what do you think or what came to your mind at the time as some of the potential solutions? I know this was not in your terms of reference, but some of the potential solutions or things that Navy might need to grapple with to address that challenge. You know, there's a couple of things. You know, I'm, a, I'm a strategic studies scholar. We like to joke that we like to sit alone in the dark in the corner at night drinking scotch and thinking about all the bad things that are coming for us in the world. And then that brings you to well, what keeps you up at night. And I have to say workforce is one of the things that keeps me up at night. It's, it's something that's a real worry and it's, it's, an, it's an, a bit of an acute problem in Navy at the moment. It's a problem for all the services. It's also a problem in industry. And we're in this bit of a unique moment where we've got 3.4% or now 3.5% unemployment. That's the lowest employment figure since the year I was born. And, you know, I'm 49 years of age now. And so it's a tough labour market. And we have to look at the value proposition for all of our services and our APS workforce, the conditions of service, and how do we as an economy get more workers into our economy to fill all those jobs, but also how do we do that as an ADF? And I think from memory, the word, well, I've just checked that on the workforce section says workforce requires an innovative and bold approach to recruitment and retention. And we have to be very innovative here. We have to look at all the options. I know there's been an interesting public discussion recently about bringing people in from overseas to join the military. You know, there's, there's a lot of Kiwis, New Zealanders who live over here on permanent residency. One of the few things they can't do is vote or join the military. We know that other services, particularly from the British Commonwealth, there's lots of Fijians. There was a great piece that was discussed a few weeks ago around this about the number of Fijians, for instance, who are in the British Army. Um, we also need to look at our migrant settings. We need to look, I think, also at the way that ADF recruitment works and how long. I mean, it's simple things that 
is an exceptionally long period of time. If you or I turned up at the recruitment office, and I think I still make the age for some jobs, but say my children turned up at the recruitment office and wanted to join Navy, um, heaven forbid I was in Army, my sister was a Navy officer though, and wanted to join Navy, the time it takes them from expressing I want to join to getting in uniform is just simply too long. It's too long because of the way the market forces work. It's too long because of the other opportunities are out there. So we need to address um, that recruitment piece, but also the retention piece. How do we keep the really good people in defence, in defence? And this means we need to think outside the box a bit. We need to think about the way that we do reward and recognition. It logically means a discussion around the way you do promotions, pay and conditions, service requirements. That's what bold and innovative is. There's, as I said, this is a strategic review. It's high level. It's given firm direction to defence and government, which they've accepted to get after this problem. It includes also the appointment, and I believe Natasha Fox, the current Deputy Chief of Army, has been appointed to a three-star job to be the head of ADF personnel. Um, this will hopefully manage, help to manage the workforce better, but also have a more integrated approach to the way we do recruitment and the way we can have someone at a very senior level to drive some of the discussions in the ADF component piece of this, of how we do this differently and better to meet the changing workforce pool that we're drawing from and the value proposition. Because at the heart of the ADF, at the heart of the defence enterprise, at the heart of who we are as a, a defence force and an APS and, and defence writ large is the people. If you've got the right people, if you've got good people and you get people with the right school matching set, that's really going to drive the whole rest of the DSR and also make us a, a more secure country. So workforce is, I, I can't talk about it enough, to be honest. I come from a university sector. I'm a former Pro Vice Chancellor of Education. So I spent a lot of time at, at working with industry on, on training young people to, to be job ready and to go into jobs. It's a real passion of mine. And it's, it's a national conversation that we really have to have both for the ADF, but defence industry as well. So, you, I mean, one of the things on shipbuilding that worries me, not about can we maintain continuous shipbuilding. To be honest, one of the concerns I have is do we have enough workers to build the number of ships we need? That's more of a concern. How do we fit all of these things in the shipbuilding plan into a schedule? It will also deliver speed to capability, which we need as well. And that's about, you know, do we have enough workers to build the ships that we need in the industry sector? And all, you know, fantastic and, and really key considerations. Given our time, I won't delve into it, but there is also the discussion point, which I'd love to get into with you another time, but how much we build here and how much we actually might have to acquire uh, elsewhere. But look, Absolutely. I just want to touch on one more thing on workforce. So the terms of reference for the DSR, and again, I don't have them in front of me, so please pick me up when I'm misquoting, but they talk about structure of the ADF. Uh, and structure is just not capability structure. Yes. You know, the uh, previous government announced in 2021, in fact, sorry, 2022, the most ambitious growth of the ADF and, in fact, of the Department of Defence. So growing by 30% to 101,000 by, by 2040. And, you know, I think it's a, it's a really ambitious thing and a conversation that, that needed to be had. But there is some indication from recruiting and retention that we might not just get there. So if we don't get there, uh, looking at the terms of reference of the DSR, and you would have looked at this, I suspect, do you think there's a conversation to be had about the structure of the ADF and the services to try and facilitate some of those workforce pressures? 
Yeah, look, I think all that has to be in part of the bold and innovative approaches that we take to recruitment and retention. And we've got to be alive to the fact that the ADF and Defence and the government has to strive to get to the, the numbers required. There is a big risk that we won't, given the workforce situation that we're in, the type of economy that we're in um, as well. So there's a lot of reprioritization that the DSR drives in the IIP and also within structures in some of the different services. So um, if you look at Air Force, for instance, there's a big focus there on in increasing the number of air and ground crew, which means greater recruitment, greater retention um, as well. So that's another very big people heavy emphasis. So you need to have contingency plans. You need to be able to think through how this will work. But I think then that needs to drive you. How can you get to, through bold and innovative approaches, to that recruitment mark? Then you have to ask fundamental questions. Does everyone need to meet the same fitness standard? Does everyone need to meet the same standard of neurodiversity? You know, my son is a neurodiverse child. He's fascinated by the military and stuff. You know, there's jobs I can think of that he would absolutely excel at in a uniform as a defence public servant. But the question is, is the system, would the system allow him to do that in the way it's in its current form? I don't necessarily think it is. And I think if you've looked at the public statements by the CDF and the secretary, they've indicated they don't think it is either. And the minister as well and the, and the assistant ministers who've called upon you know, more Australians to get involved absolutely more Australians are getting involved. How can we broaden the pool to allow more Australians to get involved who wouldn't normally meet the current recruitment measurements that we put in place? And how do we fit people appropriately to the different types of jobs and the different types of roles as the types of things that ADF personnel have to do expands? Of course, we're always going to need infantrymen. You know, I was one. We're always going to need, you know, people who can navigate and drive ships. We need engineers to do this, but we need cyber people. We need people who work on information warfare. We need technical people, people who can do AI, people who can do hypersonics. We can, you know, there's, there's a broadening gamut of, of the types and roles and tasks that we need to do. And I think we need to look at what are the essential critical requirements we need to fill that role and broaden them out as broad as possible so the applicant pool is as broad as possible. And then once we have them, how do we have a really good culture? How do we have a really good reward system? And how do we you know, have people looking at, well, this is a career that I want for life? Or if they you know, get out of uniform, how they can go to defence industry or to the APS? Or probably, to be honest, how can people move between those different parts of the defence sector writ large, from uniform service to civilian service to an industry to APS and back again more seamlessly. And as the, the document talks about, there needs to be a holistic review of the reserves. How do we really tap that reserve process better? I think we've done, you know, the first principles reviews and some other changes on reserve service have really put big strides in there, but it's a bit more about filling workforce holes. It hasn't been as strategic as it could be. And when you move into an era of strategic competition, you talk about accelerated preparedness and the other things that we also need to consider, that all now has to go into the mix as well. Well, look, thanks, Peter. I think, uh, to be honest, we, we could talk all day. I think there's some, some wonderful discussion points there about the total workforce system and how that integrates. But I think, you, you know, you hit the nail on the head when you talk about we're going to need to be bold and we're going to need to think differently. So, look, thank you so much. Fascinating discussion. Uh, really enjoyed your insights into the DSR process and some of the thinking uh, around what's gone into the document. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be here. Happy to come back. Thank you. 
Amidst questions being raised around India's reliability as a partner for the US and Australia, Barney Graywell speaks to ASPE's new senior fellow, Dr. Arzan Tarapur, about the need to reframe the debate. They discuss the range of opportunity areas in the Australia-India relationship, how Washington views Delhi's role in the Indo-Pacific, and the benefits of clearly defined policy goals in these relationships. Hi Arzan, thank you for joining us on the ASPE podcast today and welcome to ASPE as our senior non-resident fellow. Thank you very much. It's uh, it's all very fun. Uh, it's, a, it's a great privilege to be joining this group of people at ASPE, uh, albeit from across the ocean. Um, and it's great to be joining you on this podcast today. So I'm going to get straight into it um, with my first question. But sure. before that, I think we need to give our listeners some background. There's been a series of articles and op-eds in both the US and Australian media recently debating the question of whether India is a reliable partner for the West. In particular, I think it's because India sits outside of the US alliance system. You've written something in Foreign Affairs that argues that India is still the United States' best bet in the Indo-Pacific. And I'm going just by the title there. Yeah. Uh, Why do you think we have this debate again and again in the West on whether India is a reliable partner? Is there a fundamental misunderstanding of how we see India? Yeah, so, yeah, thanks for the question. Uh, Indeed, that title is the editor's prerogative. In the text, I was saying that uh, India is a good bet and we can make it an even better bet. But to get to your question about reliability, I think the reason we keep having these debates is because we in the West, uh, who are sort of new burgeoning partners of India, have never really defined what it is that we want from the partnership with India, right? So unlike established codified alliances like NATO or ANZUS, which are written in black and white, what the alliance is about, what the purpose is, what the conditions of it are, that does not exist for this partnership and it never will exist for this partnership. And so it's a bit of a, it starts off as a blank slate and it's a bit of a a moving target. For years after the sort of, US-India rapprochement around the turn of the century, in terms of strategic issues, the partnership seemed to coalesce around the issues of terrorism in China, right? There were a whole bunch of other issues, right, revolving around uh, trade, technology ties, people-to-people links. But if you're talking about strategic issues, they focused on terrorism in China. And there was this sense increasingly, especially as we were talking about China, that if we in the United States just help to India to grow and to take a larger and more active role in the region, to assume its natural position in the region, mm-hmm. then it will sort of inherently balance, counterbalance China, right? Even when it looks after its own interests, even when our interests don't align with India's interests, the fact that India because it's such a big country and because of structural reasons, rises, it will inherently counterbalance China. And so it's this big sort of like, that leaves a lot of, that's a very vague, broad concept, which leaves a lot of room for interpretation. And so when you get situations like now, where the conversation in Washington is all about Taiwan, and we can talk about that separately, when the policy debate is all about issues like Taiwan, then 
things like the US-India partnership get refracted through that. That becomes the prism through which they see this partnership, creates these expectations. And you get people like poor old Ashley Tellis who has to then write a sort of cautionary tale telling people, hang on a second, this is not what this partnership is about. It, it never was. Uh, so I think that's, that's the reason, that's the root, because we've never sort of defined the relationship. And so people read into it what they want to read into it. That's right. And just taking that thread and going back to your piece in Foreign Affairs. Um, sure, yeah. In Foreign Affairs, you particularly say, and this is a part that I really like, that in the absence of clearly defined policy goals, India's chief leaders in Washington, and I'll extend that to Canberra as well, yeah. may conjure up unrealistic expectations and then sour on the partnership when they learn that India will not fight for Taiwan. So you do think that policymakers, both American and Australian, have fallen into this trap of unrealistic expectations with India? Yes, certainly. I think certainly in the US. uh, I I don't think in Australia the policy community is quite as laser-focused on Taiwan as as the issue as they are in Washington. Um, But certainly in Washington, um, and to a lesser extent in Canberra, that is... You know, that is the expectation that is de facto implicitly building around any partnership, right? That is the prism through which all alliances and partnerships are judged. Uh, and it is unrealistic, I would argue. Um, so my article in Foreign Affairs was, was an attempt to say, listen, there's more to this relationship than just Taiwan, and we should try and... Uh, conceptualize of the partnership in more realistic terms and in more um, affordable terms. We should think about what the partnership can do in that is realistic, achievable, as well as useful for the region, as well as affordable for a very resource-constrained country like India. And, and that is the sort of argument or the discussion that I'm trying to develop in, in the foreign affairs piece. I then sort of offer a couple of ideas for what that might look like. But I think they're the parameters that we should be thinking of. Right? We should not be thinking of parameters of a wartime coalition. We should be thinking of what is a partnership that is realistic, resilient, and useful. Yes, and I, I do agree with your argument there. Um, in terms of, I think, you're right that less or so in Canberra, the focus on Taiwan, but I still think in the Australian foreign policy debate, given that the U.S. alliance is sort of, you know, the prime focus of, especially given AUKUS, prime focus of the debate and how Australia's foreign policy is going forward, the Taiwan question does loom large in terms of the U.S. alliance. And then that sort of reflects onto other new partnerships like India. Absolutely. Yeah, abs- absolutely. I mean, there's, there's, there is no escaping Taiwan for anyone in the region certainly not for a, for a treaty ally of the United States. But uh, what I would argue is that, as Ashley Tellis argues, I have my, my piece was we're framing it as a response to Tellis, but it's not a rebuttal of Tellis, right? Because I think Tellis is right. It's more just a, what I would consider to be a compliment to what Tellis said rather than, than a rebuttal because he is saying that in Washington... Taiwan is the most pressing, the most urgent uh, challenge, which is correct. 
But my point is that there's more to the region and to this partnership than just Taiwan. There's everything from water building in peacetime, which is why India matters in the context of the Quad. There's transnational challenges like climate change. And there's the sort of non-war or non-crisis strategic competition where countries like India, the US, Australia, other like-minded partners are trying to build the resilience and capacity of regional states. And so for all of those uh, policy objectives, India is, I think, a critical partner um, and, and, and the partnership should be seen uh, more holistically as a, as a means to achieve all of those policy objectives, not only deterring or winning a war over Taiwan. So now just talking about the Australia-India relationship, the momentum hasn't dampened. Prime Minister Modi was in Australia last week. He had a very successful visit. And Prime Minister Albanese also paid a visit to India in March. As you would have seen, their great... um, Chariot ride. Chariot ride in the cricket stadium in India. I do think in many ways it's now a standout relationship in the Quad, even though it's a bit younger than, you know, the India-US relationship. But here in Canberra, I see that, you know, Australia or the public debate in Australia is facing the same kind of issues that other, you know, partners have faced. Division within the Indian diaspora is a big one. Debate whether India shares Australia's values. What is your understanding of where the India-Australia relationship is now? And especially in comparison to, I think, a little bit, a bit mature uh, the India-US relationship. Yeah, that's. I think that. I think that's exactly right. Yeah, I think you have pointed to the two sort of dimensions of it in comparison to the US-India relationship are correct. That it is both deepening more quickly in the last couple of years, but also, and I think it's related. It's because it's begun later, or if you want to put it another way, starting from a lower base. Right? And so the Australia-India relationship has a bit of catching up to do, and it's been catching up. So for the last couple of years, there's been a lot of movement on, it, on everything from trade um, to sort of foreign policy, if you think of the Quad being reinvigorated in the last few years, um, and especially with the summitry, um, and the stuff that I study more, which is the strategic you know, part of the relationship, with Australia, with the the big sort of um, debut when Australia returned to Malabar, the continued tempo with other exercises like Oz Index, uh, and the the security relationship and the broadening of the bilateral relationship to include uh, what I think when Modi was in in Australia was the went from the three C's to the three E's of education, energy, and economy, um, so it's 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 deepening and broadening, but that's because uh, it started from a pretty low base, right? There was uh, from the nuclear tests in '98 uh, on, through events like the dissipation of the first quad, which is a, a bit of a complex story, but the narrative certainly has been reduced to. Australia defecting from the first quad. 
um, to the banning of uranium sales, to the um, assaults on Indian students. There was a, a drumbeat years ago of uh, instances that eroded trust or, or, or stopped trust from, from building. But I think that's been rebuilt um, in, in recent years. And on the Australian side, as the, the election last year showed, it is now a locked-in bipartisan consensus. And on the Indian side too, I think since 2020, since the crisis on the LAC, there is greater urgency for India to engage with new partners like Australia because on both sides, despite irritants which will inevitably come up, there is a sense that the two countries need each other and that there is a sense that the strategic competition is, is urgent. So when you, at the start of this, uh, of this conversation, mentioned you know, questions in the West about India's reliability, we shouldn't forget that it goes both ways, that there were questions in India and still are about American reliability and Australian reliability. And I think there'll be some quarters in, in all these countries that continue to raise those questions. But the strategic elites in all of these countries have decided, I think it is a settled matter now, that they need to work with each other to manage the regional strategic competition. Yes, and I think the point about that, that's also a question in India. Um, I think has sometimes been surprising for Australian policymakers because yeah. in India, you know, folks still remember the Rudd years. They remember it's controversial, but the perception is very much that Australia pulled out of the Quad, uh, yeah. the first iteration of the Quad. So those questions still linger despite the momentum. Right, and and yeah, and even and like I said, even before the Quad, right, the the reaction to the to Bokran, to the nuclear tests. Which was, which was a very, from Australia, a very stark response. Uh, Australia did things to suspended parts of the relationship that even the United States didn't. So there's, there's a lot of sort of, um, there was, I think, a lot of suspicion, which I think is now being overcome. I'm now going to pivot to thinking about India and the region and mm -hmm. India's relationship with China. Um, and this is, you know, a special uh, sort of an area of focus of your research and at ASPI as well. We've written extensively about the India-China border crisis. Yeah. My question is, which area of contestation or competition between India and China is, in your opinion, the most consequential for the region, for the Indo-Pacific? And I'm going ahead of the question now and sort of thinking specifically of the India-China border standoff, which I think most people don't realize, but is going to soon enter its fourth year, uh, which mm -hmm. is a, quite a big deal. Mm -hmm. Has has now entered its fourth year. Uh, yeah, has mm -hmm. now entered its fourth year, sorry. Yeah, indeed. So, yeah, look, I um, it's hard to choose, right? Because the whole nature of this strategic competition is that there are so many uh, dimensions to it that it spreads through so many sub-regions of the Indo-Pacific, and it's all interrelated. So it's hard to sort of pass it out. But you asked, and I will answer, um, and I think that the crisis on the LAC, which, as you correctly say, is not yet resolved and now enters its fourth year, 
uh, is the one that is the most high profile and the one that is most politically salient in domestic politics in India. But, and I have to dodge dodge the, the opprobrium here, I think it's actually the least consequential. It is the most sensitive in India for obvious reasons, right? It's Indian territory that Chinese troops entered. Um, it's Indian soldiers' lives that were lost. You can't argue with that. Um, but at the same time, the Indian strategic response to Ladakh has been to pour a ton of resources into strengthening the LAC, which is fine. But the problem is that when aggregate defence spending doesn't increase and when resources are poured into this one theatre, that necessarily comes at the expense of other Indian activities, other uh, military activities, and specifically I'm thinking of force modernisation, which is long overdue, and power projection capabilities into the Indian Ocean region. So the LAC crisis, which continues, um, the real cost of that is not only the 20 Javans who died, but also uh, the longer-term focus that India has now redoubled on the border at the expense of everything else. So that's one bucket, right, one zone of competition, which I would say is the most urgent for India, but actually over the long term, the least consequential. One that is less urgent, but more consequential is the Indian Ocean region. Here, it's a contest for strategic influence. And by this, I mean, literally strategic, meaning both political and military, right? So everything from the scramble for um, access to bases and, and the building of infrastructure, to freedom of navigation, to resource extraction, for fish, seabed minerals, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, right. This is something that will play out over years or decades, um, and that's only just begun as the Chinese Navy really expands and will increase its presence in the region. And this is something which I think the Indian system has not yet grasped as an urgent threat, um, but it will very quickly manifest as an urgent threat at the rate of the Chinese military's expansion. And the third bucket, um, which is the least urgent, um, but I would argue the most consequential, is the contest over what you might call the system or global governance, which is where India paints itself as an alternative to China. Um, again, I've referred a couple of times to the Quad, but I think this is where the Quad's agenda really matters because it is, as the Quad says, a positive agenda to build order in the region, to provide international public goods. Um, and it's that long-term contest over what the region looks like that will almost by definition be the most consequential. Uh, and it's a contest over whether China can establish hegemony over the region or whether countries like India um, in concert with its partners like Australia and, and the US can can stop um, or impede Chinese hegemony. And so I think that is the sort of really amorphous sort of stuff that gets pushed to the right in political discussions 
that's even that rarely makes newspapers, but that's the sort of stuff that will really determine the shape of the strategic competition in the out years. That's right, and I I, I do believe um, Modi's visit to PNG, you know, before his visit to Australia last week, and the idea that India is trying to cultivate. Um, they had their you know, summit for the Global South yeah. uh, earlier this year as well. That contest between India and China over who is sort of a leader in the Global South or who sets the voice for the Global South is, especially in terms of the Pacific Islands, pretty important for Australia. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and this is the thing, right? This is where there are times getting, and, this, and, we, and we come full circle, I guess, to where we started this discussion. There are times when... Uh, expectations in Washington or Canberra get mismatched over things like Russia and Ukraine because strategic elites in in the US and Australia wring their hands at uh, the the variance of political interests uh, with India. That India, talk horror, has its own long-standing political relationship across the world, and we and we gnash our teeth at that at times, but in fact. We should we should flip that and consider that to be an asset. That's one of the things that makes the partnership with India so important, precisely because it has different political interests and political relationships around the world, especially into what we would call the global south in Africa, in Asia, in the South Pacific, uh, where India can amplify a like-minded message into parts of the world where American and Australian diplomacy doesn't effectively reach. So this idea that India is not perfectly aligned with Australia or the US uh, is not necessarily a bad thing. That's what makes the partnership so strategically valuable. That's a really interesting point. But just so that because we are on Russia and Ukraine now, <laughs> do you think that you know, despite, like you said earlier, you know, strategic elites in, in Delhi and Washington and Canberra realized the value of the strategic partnership. But beyond the elites, you know, opposition mm. governments, et cetera, you know, the U.S. system is huge. Does the Russia question come up again and again? And do you think it can potentially hinder the relationship? Russia per se, no, because I think at least... Among the strategic elite in places like Washington, there is a recognition among among um, the, the the Biden administration, for example, and um, people who watch the relationship closely. There is an understanding of the nature of India's relationship with Russia, and yes, it is the source of real frustration, of course. But there's also a sense that Russia is yesterday's partner to India, that it's a legacy, and that as time goes on, Russia is going to have less and less to offer India. Countries like the United States and Australia are going to have more and more to offer. And so as long as people can maintain that perspective um, and manage the relationship so that we don't allow um points of friction like that to, to flare up, then I think there's a recognition that, that in the long run, there are other issues that matter more. And I'll tell you what, the summit, the, the quad virtual summit that was held in March 
of last year, 2022, soon after the invasion of Ukraine, is a really good case in point. Because despite the fact that that came right at the time of the uh, UNGA uh, resolutions on which India abstained, despite the fact that it came at the height of Western frustration towards India, the Quad leaders got together virtually and released a short statement saying, hey, listen, whatever our differences are, when it comes to the Indo-Pacific, we are agreed on certain strategic interests in defense of sovereignty, territorial integrity, freedom of navigation, etc., etc. So that to me was a really uh, clear crystallization of the fact that we don't agree on everything and there are points of frustration and Russia is one of them, but ultimately it pales in comparison to what all capitals agree is the most urgent and important priority, which is competition with China. I think that's a good note now for the end of the podcast. So thanks, Arzan, for joining us today. And I look forward to more conversations with you, especially uh, when you're back here in Canberra. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It's been a, it's been a real pleasure chatting with you. And I really look forward to uh, uh, coming by and, and visiting the office next time I'm in town. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. We'll be back with another episode soon. Thanks for listening.